Hi, everyone. This is Jeff Ebert, your host for this podcast, Gospel Wabi Sabi, where we talk about God's good news for imperfect people. I can't believe it. 52 weeks now, 52 episodes on the Gospel of John, and we've got one more to go next week. And I really want to commend you. If you've been through the entire season, I hope that you've really gained a lot of deeper understanding of the Gospel of Jesus and his message, but also that you've been drawn more personally and deeply connected to him as your Lord and Savior. That's my hope. So we're going to have one more week on the Gospel of John, finishing up uh, next uh, next episode. And if you had a favorite episode over the past 52 weeks, could you just kind of shoot me an email and tell me why it was your favorite episode? What was it about that particular passage or that particular episode that really spoke to you? And you can do that through my website, jeffebert.com. Uh, after we finish with uh, John, we're going to do a real brief series on Psalm 23. I've been reading the Psalms as part of my personal and some small group studies that I'm in, so it's been on my mind a lot, and it's just such a great portion of Scripture, kind of crystallizes so many important issues. And that's going to get us through the end of November, and then, as I mentioned last week, I'm having double knee replacement surgery I'm going to need to focus on my rehab for a few weeks, get my new knees uh, working properly. So I'll be taking a short break from the podcast in December, uh, and that'll also give me time to do some prep for launching a new series in January. It's going to be called Singing the Blues, and we're going to look at the wisdom of the book of Ecclesiastes through sort of a gospel wabi-sabi lens. I think it's going to be an eye-opening look at a book of the Bible that a lot of people just skip over because they think it's so negative. But we're going to talk about that, but mainly we're going to focus on how to read and understand Ecclesiastes, knowing that Jesus is really the answer to many of the questions that are posed in that book. And I'd really appreciate your financial support of my podcast. If you do that, I can send you a weekly script of the podcast, as well as when we get into Ecclesiastes, I'll be sending out weekly study questions that you can use for your own devotions, or better yet, for a small group. And it's just a great way to do a Bible study, gather people together, uh, listen to the podcast, go over the scripture, use the questions as your guide, kind of easy peasy. So if you look in the program notes, you'll see how you can become a supporter. But then you do have to email me because uh, the hosting platform only sends me names and no other personal info. So I need you to send me your email so that I can connect with you. And you can do that also through my website, jeffebert.com. So again, we're in season one, episode 52 on Believing Thomas from John 20, starting with verse 24. Now, there aren't many things that make me spontaneously laugh out loud, but a number of years ago, when I lived in New Jersey, uh, NewJersey.com posted a story and a cell phone video that just brought me to tears. I was laughing so hard. It seems that at the Newport Center Mall in Jersey City, they had an Easter display in the center court with a live person dressed up as an Easter bunny, and the little kids would come and sit on his lap and get their pictures taken. When one little girl was getting off the Easter bunny's lap, something happened where she slipped and sort of fell and kind of hit her face, and her father thought it was the Easter bunny fault, like he was being careless. So the dad goes ballistic, and he attacks the Easter bunny. I mean, just starts wailing on him. But this Easter bunny was nobody's punching bag. So in the video, you see the Easter bunny throw down his fluffy bunny gloves, and the two of them go at each other like Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier. I mean, it's so bad, the mall cops have to come in and tackle both of them. 
It was like something you'd see in a Saturday Night Live skit or a Paul Blart movie. The visual image of the mall cops tackling the Easter Bunny. That just put me over the edge. And of course, everyone wants to know who framed Roger Rabbit. So anyway, I'll post the video link in the episode description if you want to see that for yourself. But it just reminded me that people focus on the wrong thing so often at Easter. Often focus on the wrong thing in the story of the crucifixion. Who's to blame for the death of Christ? That's been often what people have focused in on, and it's become an excuse for anti-Semitism throughout the centuries. And that's just so wrong. Because we all put Jesus on the cross. We all did. All our sins. He carried all our sins to the cross, voluntarily laid his life down for us. We know the Romans carried it out. We saw that in the last few chapters of John. But the fixation on the question surrounding how Jesus died really misses the point. You see, the real controversy is not how Jesus died, but did he live again? That's where we need to focus. Resurrection is the most important thing. That's why on there's kind of a difference between Protestants and Catholics in this, because Roman Catholics, if you see their crucifix, there's always the body of Jesus on the cross. For Protestants, the body's gone. The body isn't still on the cross. We're not focused on the act of his death, but on the reality of his coming to new life. Resurrection is the most important thing. Without resurrection, Jesus is just another failed cult leader. The Romans executed thousands upon thousands of people by execution. There was nothing special about Jesus' death in that regard. All kinds of people were nailed to crosses that Friday afternoon. And throughout the centuries, many people have suffered greater physical tortures, as greater, greater than Jesus. I just think of the 21 Christians in Iraq who had their heads cut off by the ISIS terrorists several years ago. I mean, lots of people die unjust, violent, painful deaths. But what happened on the third day? That's the most important thing. The heavy stone rolled away from the entrance, his grave empty, his grave wrapping still intact, but collapsed like the air let out of a balloon. And as marvelous appearing to Mary, and as we know in the other Gospels, the other women and the rest of the disciples, the resurrection is the linchpin of the Christianity and the ultimate authentication of Jesus' claim that he is God. The Apostle Paul, Paul said it this way, 1 Corinthians 15, 14, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. You see, without resurrection, Jesus wouldn't even rate a footnote in a book on ancient history. Without resurrection, we would still be lost in our sin and brokenness. Without resurrection, Jesus never would have had the impact that he's had on the lives of so many millions of people throughout human history. The one who truly brings new life, Jesus risen from the grave, conquering sin and death, offering us forgiveness and a fresh hope for this world and the next. It's the resurrection revolution where God in Christ takes action to redeem this fallen world. Now, every year at Easter, we tell the same story of what happened during that first Holy Week in Jerusalem some 1900 years ago. We usually start with Jesus' triumphant Palm Sunday entrance into Jerusalem, his final teachings, his enemies maneuvering to betray him, the last gathering with his disciples at the Passover meal, his emotion-packed prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, then in rapid succession, the arrest, the beatings, the phony trials, the crucifixion, and Jesus dead, with an extra spear thrust to his heart just to make sure. Everything crashed and burned up so fast it left the disciples stunned, disoriented, dispirited, and doomed. I mean, they're hiding out. They're waiting for the Roman SWAT team to kick in the door 
and haul them away. Then Sunday morning, Mary, the other women, they go to Jesus' tomb to finish the burial rituals that were interrupted by the Jewish Sabbath. The strange encounters at the tomb, the body gone, the grave clothes still there, but like a collapsed cocoon. Angelic light and what they say is an encounter with Jesus alive. There's running back and forth to the tomb by the disciples, and later that same Sunday, they're all gathered in a locked room trying to put the pieces of this puzzle together, and suddenly Jesus is right there with them. They think it's a mass hallucination, that their grief has made them crazy. So Jesus eats a piece of broiled fish right in front of them to prove that he wasn't a ghost or a figment of their imagination. They touch him. They realize the truth of what he'd been telling them all along, that he would rise from the dead, that he was stronger than sin and more powerful than the worst thing this world can do to us. But one of the disciples wasn't there, Thomas. And that's where today's scripture picks up the story, starting with John 20, verse 24. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them, and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. It's unfortunate that for many, Thomas is indelibly stamped with the label Doubting Thomas. He's portrayed as the pessimist, a glass-half-empty kind of guy. The disciples come to him effervescing, overflowing with this good news about the encounter with the risen Christ, and he throws cold water on the whole thing. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where his nails were, put my hand in his side, I will not believe. It's unfortunate that his statements are portrayed as though he's the only disciple who had doubts. They all had doubts. I mean, I think Thomas is actually one of the greatest heroes of the Christian faith, and I want to tell you why. Thomas is only mentioned three times in the Gospel of John. The first time is back in John 11 in the story of the death of Jesus' friend Lazarus. Lazarus's sisters, Mary and Martha, send word to Jesus and ask him to come. And Jesus' disciples object because to get to Lazarus's village, they would have to go through a territory where people really hated Jesus and might try to kill him. But Jesus is determined to go no matter the risk. And in verse 16, it says, Then Thomas, called the twin, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now, people read that two ways. Either it's an example of how fatalistic Thomas was. He's sort of like Eeyore, that pessimistic blue donkey in the Winnie the Pooh stories with a constant dark cloud over his head. I guess we're all going to die. Or it was a statement of real courage. The Thomas was willing to stand with Jesus, even if it meant death. When Thomas believed in something, he went all the way. The second time we see Thomas is in that great passage in John 14, verses 1 through 5, 
where Thomas elicits from Jesus the clearest, most magnificent statement of hope for life after death that Jesus ever made. We hear it quoted over and over again at memorial services and funerals. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I will come back and take you to be with me. You know the way to the place where I'm going. In a beautiful way, Jesus is saying that when you die, you're not going to float around on fluffy clouds, not going to pluck harps or shine halos for all eternity. When you die, you will be with me. And that's what heaven is. It's your continuing connection with me. We will be together. That's what makes heaven heaven. That's what Jesus was saying. And everyone is just in awe of what Jesus said. And then Thomas kind of sticks his hand up. He said, uh, Jesus, I don't have a clue what you're talking about. I don't know where you're going. I don't know how to get there. I don't know the way. So how can I know how to follow you? So in the middle of this fabulous speech, Thomas comes in again with this showstopper. And what I love about Thomas is that he's just so honest. He's not going to keep his confusions hidden. He's willing to say it. And I admire him for that. Nobody else knew what the heck Jesus was talking about either, which was frequently true of the disciples. But they just kind of nodded and going, uh-huh, uh-huh. What did he say? Maybe they'd talk about it later. They'd try to figure it out. But they weren't going to ask Jesus directly, straight out, because they didn't want to look stupid. But Thomas wasn't that way. Thomas wanted to know. His uncertainty made him question. And that gave Jesus a wonderful opportunity to clarify for all time and for all of us, how do people get to heaven? In response to Thomas, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If Thomas had not expressed his doubt, Jesus may not have expressed with such clarity how it is that a person gets from here to heaven. It's through Jesus Christ alone and faith in him. Thomas's question gave rise to deeper understanding that has benefited every generation of Christians from that time until now. I mean, how beautiful is that? The third time we see Thomas is after Jesus' death, and the news of his resurrection has started to circulate among the disciples, as we just read. The most important thing to remember about the resurrection is that the Christian faith is a personal relationship with a living God. It's not a devotion to a religious system. It's not a moral philosophy or a code of life or a set of ethics. Being a Christian is a relationship with the living Lord. It's not honoring the teachings of some dead philosopher. Without the resurrection, we would stand by Jesus' grave and talk about all the wonderful things Jesus said and did and walk away hopeless. Instead, we go to an empty tomb and realize that Jesus is living and active, that he can make a difference in our lives today through the power of his presence in the Holy Spirit. And ever since that first Easter, lives have been transformed by him. But Thomas wasn't there the first time Jesus appeared to the disciples. Well, where was he? Did he bail out? Yeah, I don't think so. I think he probably, he withdrew sort of within himself. When there was hurt, when there was disencouragement, Thomas was the kind of person who maybe just didn't want to be with people. When he was hurting, he didn't want to make small talk. He had to be alone. I think he was a private person, probably more introspective than the others. So he needed to wrestle within himself to try and figure out what was happening around him and in his own life. He wanted to be alone with his hurts. Now, I can identify with that because there's some of that in my personality type as an introvert. 
But the other disciples come to him with their news. He gives them a stark response. Unless I can see the nail marks, I'm not going to believe. I mean, the disciples are on cloud nine, and Thomas just lets the air out of their tires. You know what that's like. You're so excited about something, you want to share it with someone, and they just kind of sit there like a lump, like a bump on a log. But there is more than that here. Remember, Thomas is an intensely honest man. He's not just going to take somebody else's word for it. This is something that he thinks needs careful investigation. It's got to satisfy his mind, not just his emotions. It's got to satisfy his intellect. He's got to have real physical evidence. He's not going to have any kind of blind faith. He wants real, physical, tangible evidence that Jesus has come back from the dead. He needs facts. I could hear him saying, I know you think it happened. That's great for you, but I have got to see it for myself. Now, this is the one of the frustrating things about sharing your faith. Sometimes we want people to live off of our faith. We had a great experience with Jesus. We want others to share our same experience. But people can't live off of somebody else's spiritual autobiography with God. You can't base your relationship on God with God on what your spouse has experienced or what your parents or grandparents or your best friend experienced. We all have to have our own encounter with Jesus. That also means we have to give people the freedom to have their own encounter with God. It doesn't have to exactly mirror what happened to you. Because that is really what Thomas was looking for. He couldn't live off the experience of the disciples. He had to know and meet Christ for himself. So though Thomas probably wasn't voted happiest disciple, when it came to making a commitment, he meant it. He thought things through. And when thoroughly convinced, he moved in that direction with his whole heart. And so eight days later, the disciples are together again, and this time Thomas is with them. He hasn't isolated himself completely. The doors are shut, and suddenly Jesus came like before and stood among them. And Jesus said, Peace be with you. Now, who was he speaking to? I think primarily this time to Thomas. He'd already encountered the other disciples. Who needed peace the most? Probably Thomas. I think he was speaking peace to Thomas because this is not something that ordinarily happens. Someone suddenly appearing in a locked room. Jesus says to him, put your finger here. Put your hand here. I don't Jesus, I think Jesus said that in a harsh way. I don't think he said, Thomas, you need proof? Well, come on, step up. I don't think he said it with an edge in his voice. I think he offered his hand and just said, Thomas, here I am. You wanted proof, so I'm giving it to you now. Jesus knew what was in Thomas's life. He knew the struggles, the heartaches. He knew the doubts, like he knows every single doubt and heartache, every struggle that we have. And he says to us, here I am, ask, doubt, but then encounter me. I will give you all the evidence you need. It reminds me of the problem of Eric Weinmeier had. He was a blind mountain climber who had successfully scaled seven of the world's tallest mountains. In 2001, he was climbing Mount Everest. And after he arrived at the base camp in Kumbu Valley of Nepal, a rumor began circulating around the Sherpa guides that he wasn't really blind. They had never heard of a mountain climber who was blind. They thought he was faking because he didn't seem to flop over on his face every few feet. People would approach him in the bazaar and wave their hands in front of his eyes. And because blind people can be sensitized to things in a different way, he would feel the wind and flinch, and they'd say, see, he's not blind, he's faking it. Finally, he called his lead Sherpa, Kami Tenzing, 
into his tent, and he said he had a message he wanted taken back to everyone else. And so Eric leaned over, leaned forward, pulled down on his left lower eyelid, and his prosthetic eye popped out into his hands. He held it in front of him and said to the Sherpa, I can take the other one out too. No, no, not necessary. Some people need evidence. What more evidence did Thomas need about Jesus Christ? Thomas was not faithless. He just needed that personal encounter with the risen Christ, and it was a great moment of truth. It was the making of a man. He could have said, I still don't believe it. This is delusional. He could have walked out. Instead, he gave one of the greatest statements of faith ever recorded in Scripture, one of the great prayers of adoration ever prayed, a model for all believers down through the centuries. What does it mean to believe? It means to stand in awe before Christ and simply to say, my Lord and my God. That's it. That's it in a nutshell, to be able to say, my Lord and my God. We're not really sure if he actually touched Jesus. Did Thomas actually have to then reach out his hand and put it into Jesus' side or his nail holes? We're not told in the text. If you look at all the artwork of this moment that has been done over the centuries, they generally show Thomas's hand going into the spear wound in Jesus' side. I don't know that he actually did that, but whatever happened, it convinced Thomas so thoroughly that he gave his life to Jesus and spread the word about him until years later, he was killed for it after bringing the gospel to India. You see, doubt is a really important part of our journey of faith. There is doubt on the outside of faith looking in, and there is doubt on the inside of faith looking out. When doubt is on the outside of faith, it's not sure about God at all. Is God even real? Is Jesus who he claims to be? How can I know Jesus even existed? Is the Bible true? Can miracles happen? Lots and lots of honest and important questions that deserve solid intellectual answers. Because many people need to seriously wrestle with these basic faith issues. Lee Strobel was a person like that. You've probably heard his name if you've been around the faith for a while. Uh, Lee Strobel was an award-winning journalist with the Chicago Tribune and an agnostic who didn't believe in anything religious, much less the resurrection of Christ. And so he decided to apply his investigative journalism skills to disproving the Christian faith. And so he writes this, and I quote, All I had ever really given the evidence was a cursory look. I had read just enough philosophy and history to find support for my skepticism. A fact here, a scientific theory there, a pithy quote, a clever argument. Sure, I could see some of the gaps and inconsistencies in this thinking, but I had a strong motivation to ignore them. A self-serving and immoral lifestyle that I would be compelled to abandon if I were ever to change my views and become a follower of Jesus. As far as I was concerned, the case was closed. There was enough proof for me to rest easy with the conclusion <coughs> excuse me, that the divinity of Jesus was nothing more than a fanciful invention or of superstitious people, or so I thought. But the more he looked into it, the more he investigated, the more he was drawn to Christ until finally he had his own divine encounter with Jesus. And like Thomas, had to declare, my Lord and my God. He has written about how his life and mind were changed by evidence he discovered as a journalist. And I really recommend any of Lee Strobel's books, The Case for Christ, The Case for Easter, The Case for the Cross. There are a lot of them. The Case for Christ is the best one. So if you're like Lee Strobel, then I hope you won't settle for half answers, that you'll push a bit harder, push a bit deeper, because there is ample evidence to satisfy the mind and sensitize the heart to the love of Christ. 
Well, what about doubt on the inside looking out? Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Because there is always doubt within the circle of faith. Doubt is normal, especially when you're going through a time of crisis. Does God hear my prayer? Can God do anything? Will God do anything? Does God care? Recently, I read about a minister whose son had committed suicide tragically. The pastor decided he wanted to speak to his congregation about what had happened. Still in tremendous grief, he read that famous verse from Romans 8.28, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and have, who have been called according to his purpose. And then the pastor said this, and I quote, I cannot make my son's suicide fit into this passage. It is impossible for me to see how anything good can come out of it. Yet I realize that I only see in part. I only know in part. It's like the miracle of the shipyard. Almost every part of the great ocean-going vessels are made of steel. If you take any single part, a steel plate out of the hull or the huge rudder, throw it into the ocean, it will sink. Steel doesn't float. But when shipbuilders are finished, when the last plate has been riveted in place, then that massive ship is virtually unsinkable. Taken by itself, my son's suicide is senseless. Throw it into the sea of Romans 8.28 and it sinks. <coughs> Still, I believe that when the eternal shipbuilder has finally finished, when God has worked out his perfect design, even this senseless tragedy will somehow work to our eternal good. Unquote. Friends, there are going to be times of serious doubt and struggle from within the Christian life. Doubt doesn't mean you're a bad Christian. It just means that you're a normal person. Doubts will come, but it's important where you place them. Because if your doubts become, if you place your doubts between you and God, they become a wedge of separation. But if you place your doubts and pre- on the outside, they press you closer to Christ. They become an opportunity to deepen your experience with him. Thomas's doubts evaporated in the presence of Christ, my Lord and my God. Thomas's astonished prayer could be the most important five words of the entire Easter story because they are the words Jesus wants to hear from each and every one of us today. A simple and powerful declaration, a summary statement of what it means to encounter the living Lord, my Lord and my God. Have a great week.